0: We went to read our scripture lessons today, so if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible there. You'll find the page numbers for the passages we're going to read listed in the bulletin. Uh, Jeremiah 32, verses 16 through 28, is really a prayer of Jeremiah and a response from God. I'll try and set that out for you in the sermon, what actually is going on here. But here we need to hear Jeremiah's prayer. And uh, what do you ask God for? Listen here to God's Word. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children. After them, O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to His ways and accounting to the, account, according to the fruit of His deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day both in Israel and among mankind. And you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders. And with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them. A land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this calamity... Come upon them. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold... I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it, amen." Our gospel text is from Luke chapter 19, traditional text for Palm Sunday of the triumphal entry. We're going to read the uh, next three verses as well. These are a picture of Jesus that only Luke includes in this particular portion of the Scriptures. Luke chapter 19 beginning at verse 29, listen here to God's Word. When Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mountain that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. and They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As He was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as He was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory of the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." Amen. And our epistle reading is from Colossians, the first chapter, the first 14 verses. Here we get a different picture of things. This is what's happened in the basically the 30 years since. Holy Week. Listen here again to God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of what you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen." We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Well, Lord God, we bow before You, the Lord of all the earth, who made the heaven and the earth by Your outstretched arm, as we've already read and as You've declared. We ask for You, Lord, today to continue to stretch Your hand out toward us in power to minister your truth, your word to us, that we may be built up, grow and increase in the knowledge of God and in our comprehension of your word and what that means for our lives and live more faithfully, fruitfully for you. We ask that you would do this, that your name may be praised. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me set the scene for you. It's the year 588 or 587 BC, before Christ, before Christ was born. It's the 10th year of the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was one of the sons, the third son of Josiah, to sit on the throne of Israel. It's his 10th year. Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians. There's famine, there's pestilence a present reality. It's been going on for some time. They have very, very difficult place to sit and to be. The Babylonians, by the tens of thousands, surround the city, have for some months siege ramps are being built up to the walls of Jerusalem. And they're going to use those siege ramps to go up and batter down the walls and come in and sack Jerusalem. That's the intent. That's what's going on there. They hear the sound of the of the Babylonians, of the machinery of war, constantly, have for months. Now, Jeremiah is in the midst of all this. For 30 plus years, he's had a prophetic ministry. Remember, we talked about this a couple of months ago, the very first chapter of Jeremiah talks about this. The burden of what Jeremiah has had to say to the nation of Israel was that he saw a a boiling pot coming from the north, bringing destruction. Now 30 years prior to this, no one thought much about the Babylonians. Assyria was running down, and, but no one thought much about the Babylonians. But 30 years have brought a lot of change. And now here the Babylonians are at the gates. The Babylonians have already defeated the Egyptians, the Battle of Carchemish, 15 years before and their start to power. Uh, so what he, he has been prophesying for 30 plus years, which didn't seem possible at all, now is at hand. Jeremiah, however, is imprisoned. He's been in prison for a while. Now, they didn't have prisons per se in Israel because they didn't believe in prisons. You know, the, if you, there was quick and immediate justice and there was restitution. So, you know, you either uh, had to pay back or work it off or do something like that. Rarely were they imprisoned, except for someone like Jeremiah who had done nothing wrong, but they wanted to shut his mouth. Already he had been thrown into a cistern and into a well where he was up to his armpits in mud. Uh, there were people who wanted to kill him. But Zedekiah, the king, for some reason or another protects Jeremiah. And he's in the courthouse, the guardhouse as it were, in prison, held there. It's not a prison per se, but he's not allowed to go anywhere and he has guards around him all the time. Now, while he's there, another word from the Lord comes to him. That's earlier in chapter 32. I couldn't read the whole chapter, otherwise we'd been here till noon, just reading Scripture, right? Uh, But the word of the Lord comes to him and says, you know what? Your cousin, Hanani, I think it is, is going to come here and he's going to ask you if you'd like to buy a piece of land. Uh, Now, stop and think about this, how I've set the scene for you, right? The the piece of land is over the Mount of Olives, back over a little way there, sort of where Bethany is, back where Mary and Lazarus and Martha live, Anathoth, that's where where his hometown is, that's where his uh, ancestral grounds would be. That land has been run over by the Babylonians. It's been destroyed by now, under their hand, under their care, under their authority. And his cousin's going to come to him and say, how about buying this land? You have the right of redemption because you're in our family. And God has told him to buy the land. It's not a good deal. There's no building project going to go on there. There's no farm that's going to be producing fruits and crops. The land is worthless. However, Jeremiah buys it at the direction of the Lord. <clears throat> he does so formally with witnesses, with deeds, a closed deed and an open deed, one that's sealed and one that's open so people can read it, and uh, with money, 17 shekels of silver. Uh, Christian, would you project the first text I have here for us today? Jeremiah thirty-two, fourteen and 15, so these are the verses immediately preceding what we read from, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, talking to Jeremiah, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Now, let's stop and think about this. The Babylonians have control of the land. They've done bad stuff to it. And Jeremiah's buying it. And he's been prophesying that they're gonna, Israel's going to go in exile for a while. And God says, you buy this land, you get a deed, and you put it in an earthenware jar. Now, are earthenware jars good storage jars? Someone say yes or no. Someone say something. Yes, they are. How do you know they are? Qumran. Hello. Right? Qumran. For 2,000 years, they held written records that we still can read today. They were found later on. So, God says, I want this to be a permanent record so it can be found. Now, of course, the best permanent record that he has is in the Bible. (laughs) So, we know that it was. Now, it doesn't describe the land where it is precisely, but we know in directions. But... But he says, I want you to know that this land, which is worthless today, I'm going to make worthwhile. Okay, Christian, you can take that one down. Uh, And so, that's the point. There will be renewed prosperity in due time even in the face of judgment that's impending. Hence, Jeremiah's prayer that we read, okay? now. I'll set the scene some more. It's still with Jerusalem. But it's 600 years later. It's about the year A.D. 33. It's early spring, just prior to Passover. And pilgrims are pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover. Annually they do this. And this A.D. 33 is no exception, and the city will swell to 10 to 20 times its ordinary size. Literally, there'll be millions of people in Jerusalem and its environs during this time of Passover, and it's always a time of great excitement. People are geared up; they're all together. There's a sense of this that are going to celebrate a ho- high holy f- uh, festival, and it's going to be a great time. They, they're looking forward to it, and it's a good thing. Now, Jesus is still alive in A.D. 33 in the springtime, and he's also been a cause for great excitement. Less than two weeks earlier, he had raised a man from the dead. Remember who this was? Lazarus, right? Lazarus, been dead for four days. They said, don't remove, he says, remove the stone. He said, don't remove the stone, there'll be a stench. He's been dead for four days. He says, Lazarus, come forth, Is in John chapter 11. And Lazarus comes forth, but he's alive. Well, you can imagine the creation, the excitement that this caused in Jerusalem and all around it, where these millions of people hear about this, and there's excitement. It's a marvelous thing. The text in John says that many people believe in Christ because of this. They want to follow him, so if this guy can raise someone from the dead, we need to listen to him. They want to meet and see and interact with Jesus, but, but the authorities see this as a big problem. So uh, Christian, would you put up the next text that we have here? This is from John 11, verses 47, then we skip to 53, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs." This is on the this is on the backside of Jesus raising Lazarus and, <clears throat> excuse me, and all the stir that that created. They, they get together. What are we going to do? A guy raised someone from the dead. Oh, we know what we'll do. We'll kill him. Isn't that interesting? So from that day on they planned together to kill him, that is to kill Jesus. They're not excited about Jesus at all. Someone who gives life, they're gonna give death to. How bad can you be? All right, Christian, that's good, thank you. So Jesus, this is the backdrop for Jesus entering Jerusalem. The crowds praise Him, we read about that. He's raised Lazarus, He's done all kinds of signs and wonders and spoken and taught and done things for the past three years. They use Messianic language In their ascriptions of praise to Jesus, they call Him the Son of David, which evokes the great memory of the Messianic text that there's going to be a king over Israel forever. He's going to be a great king over all the kings of the earth. He'll be from the line of David. They say, Son of David. Now, Jesus is from the line of David, you know. It's true that way. They call Him the King of Israel. Oh, my. He's a peasant. Come down from Galilee. They call him, the King of Israel. He is, of course, the King of Israel. What's going to be be put on the sign in Hebrew, Latin, and Aramaic? No Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. uh, when, When he's crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he really is. And we read today they quote... From Zechariah chapter 9, here comes your king riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, Jesus is doing exactly what Zechariah 9 prophesied as far as when the king of Israel would come. They they see that, they they call him the king of Israel. Now, only Luke, in the passage, passage we read today sees this or records this particular aspect of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He records that Jesus wept. Now we know that you know the famous passage in Matthew 23 at the end of the woes where it says that Jesus looked and wept over Jerusalem. Luke has that passage too. It's back in Luke 13. This is a different time, not that far away, but he again weeps over Jerusalem because he sees what's happening. He sees what's about to happen. That within a generation, Jerusalem will be rabble and rubble, they will be gone. Great destruction, great death, great tragedy. He sees all that and he weeps because he has the means whereby that may be averted, but their eyes are blind and they don't see the day of their visitation. And so, they keep plunging headlong into the direction they've been going, and Jesus weeps. Jesus also weeps, I think, because He sees what this next week holds for Him. He's been telling the disciples for some time that He must go up to Jerusalem and there be persecuted, prosecuted spit on, killed by the leaders and rulers of the country. He's going to be executed. He realizes that he, he's walking in the midst of all this praise, with all this acclamation, he's walking into a death trap, as it were. And he weeps. But he does that willingly. <clears throat> he does that knowingly. Because he is the king of Israel. And what he does will have consequences, which we'll see in just a moment. And so because of that, the praise which the people are offering up to him is exactly right and what's required right then. Jesus himself says, if these people were quiet and they didn't say anything at all, the stones themselves would cry out and give praise like this. Because the Messiah, the promise of God, the promised one of God is coming to do the work which God has promised from the beginning, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now now is the time. This is the the, the culmination of all God's plan and purpose for redemption. This is what all the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings pointed to. It's going to be done now. It's coming to a culmination. So, even if the people had been quiet, Jesus says, the stones themselves would cry out because God's purpose is being accomplished even in the midst of judgment. So the title of the sermon this morning is, What God Can Do. I finished my introduction. (laughs) This was set the scene for everything. Jeremiah's Prayer. He prays in faith, but he wonders. Will God actually destroy the city of God? That's what all the Jews think could never happen. The presence of God dwells here in the temple. He will never let Jerusalem be sacked and raised like this. Well, Jeremiah's been convinced of that. He knows that that shall happen. He knows that it will happen deservedly. And we read in his prayer, he gives a list of all the things they've done. Since the time they were brought out of Egypt and brought in here, they've just transgressed, 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 done that which they ought not to have done, not done the things they should have done. He says, we deserve it. He says, Lord, I bought land at your direction. That acreage from Hananiah, my cousin, I bought it at your direction. And so he reminds himself his prayer of who God is. Ah, Lord God behold you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Can you take this land? which is worthless, which is run over by the Babylonians, can you take this land and make it fruitful, prosperous, inhabited by the people of God again?" He wonders. You notice this prayer is much different than the one we read a month or two ago from Jeremiah 20 when he said, God, you've deceived me and I've I've said all your stuff and it's just resulted in people constantly being against me. This is a much different prayer. That prayer came fairly early on in his ministry. This is just in the last year of of his recorded ministry that we have. Much different prayer. Prayer of faith. And in verse 27, God speaks back to him and answers his prayer. He says, Jeremiah, you got it exactly right. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? I can take a land that's under judgment, that's going to receive the judgment of God, and I can make it bloom again. I can make it be resourceful again. I can make it be the home of the people of God again. Nothing is too difficult for me. I will do it." Jesus' lament, even though the crowds are exactly correct that He is the King. The crowds don't see the king's costly mission. And within a matter of a week, folks are going to be in great, great distress. There won't be praise, there won't be adoration, there'll be dismay, disillusionment, unbelief, all kinds of things will happen. But what Jesus sees is the hardness of heart of the vast number of people and destruction that lies ahead. He will wrestle, just like Jeremiah, he will wrestle with God about all this. I invite you to come on Good Friday evening, and we'll read about and see, and hear his wrestling with the Father. A wrestling like Jeremiah in faith. A wrestling that can hear the hard and difficult words of God and go forward in faith. Here's the reality though, it's Colossians 1. What Jesus does on the cross bears fruit. and Colossians 1 lays it out as clearly as any place in Scripture. Your sin and your sins can be forgiven. All of us are just like Jerusalem. We all deserve the judgment of God. We have not walked as we should. But the judgment of God, Jesus bore for his people, for us. The gospel is this, your sin and your sins can be forgiven, and you can have peace with God. Real, genuine peace, not a veneer, not a covering over, not a just pretending that things are all okay. No. Sins have been acknowledged. Guilt is there, and it's been taken away. The price has been paid, and your life, just like God promised Jeremiah that piece of land he by Your life can be transformed. You can go from being a scoundrel to someone people can trust and count on. You can go from being someone who, who is just wondering wherever you, you may be to someone who has purpose, direction. You know what God has for you. You can go from someone who has all kinds of bad things coming out of your mouth to someone who speaks the praises of God without taint. You can go from someone who's a cheat and a liar to someone who's honest and upright and people know they can trust your word. Isn't that good? That's what God does. He transforms us. We wish it were instantaneously like this. It takes time and He works at that. He works on us. We are His workmanship, you know. We've memorized that. We are His workmanship. He's created good works for us ahead of time that we should walk in them. God can do that in your life. You can and will bear fruit God. Hallelujah. I don't know how you are, but I'm up here about ready to cry. Because we know who we are. We understand that. But we, we, the gospel says He can take us and make us fruitful for Him. Hallelujah. God can do that. What does he do? Colossians 1 lays it out very clearly. He rescues us from the domain of darkness. You don't just walk out of there. You don't just walk out of the domain of darkness. He comes, he rescues you, pulls you up, says, come on, and transfers you to the kingdom of his beloved son. And we have a new king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules over us, and we're His, we're His people. I have two minutes. I read all this stuff here in Jeremiah, I don't know how you think about that, but I look at the United States of America, and I think we're right there with judgment. I can be in despair on what's going to happen. I see that we have people, whole institutions and leadership and all kinds of things that are going on that are deliberately turning their back on God and His truth and His Word. Just like the Pharisees and the council that we read about in John 11:53, 53, they've determined that they will kill God and His Word, who said, no, you can't say anything about that. Now, people, that's darkness. That's the domain of darkness saying that. Recognize that. The stuff we read about are not fairy tales. These things happen down through the ages and in our land. Darkness is getting greater, stronger, and pushing. And we can feel like Jeremiah. But we see today what God can do. I encourage you in the next week, to go see the movie Unplanned. Have you heard of that movie, Unplanned? Since, I think it's 2015, one person we've prayed for, with some regularity, once a month anyway, is Deborah Nucatola. Remember who Deborah Nucatola is? She's the head of medical services for Planned Parenthood North America. She's the one in that first tape that was released that talked about how she could get babies out and so that the cavarium, the, the skull is intact. She talked about how well, you, you crush the middle portion of it and that way you get it out and get to the, where the head is, just bring it on out. She's the one talking about that. We've been praying for her. She has an interesting testimony. If you read the whole transcript of that whole thing, she, you know, I've told you this before, she got into doing abortions because she wanted to help kids. And somehow that got all. Tw- You're at me. I have it back in my office. You can read it. That that got all twisted around. And she's where she is in a place I'm sure she never thought she'd be, but she's there. She's there happily. Well, God can save and change her life. So that's why I said go see Unplanned, because there a woman named Abby Johnson, true story, had the whole Planned Parenthood in. in a city in Texas who was the, the Planned Parenthood uh, person of the year for Texas in one year, she got converted. She saw the horror of what she was doing, and God transferred her out of the domain of darkness <clears throat> into the kingdom of His beloved Son. God can do that. And we are under obligation to pray for our land. To bear witness and speak where appropriate, where right. To speak what God says, to not be intimidated and pushed back by the powers of darkness. Now for some it may be like Jeremiah, they end up in jail or imprisoned or castigated or whatever it may be. But we are called to be witnesses to what God can do. And unlike Jeremiah, we know what he has done. Christ died for our sins. He died to transform us and make us new people and make us fruitful for Him. I'm two minutes over. Now stop and think, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had all the people who are here today had all their sins listed up here on on the screens? Wouldn't that be great? It would. We, then we really remember who we are, what we've done, what we're like, and what God has redeemed us from. We were, but now we are, right? That's why it's always good to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11. There's this catalog of these great sins. It says, such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you're saints of God. I look out across here. I know some of the stuff that's out there that's been done. I don't know it all by any means. But Christ shows what God can do. And just he's not just interested in getting you converted, saved, part of his people. He's interested in your bearing fruit for Him. Remember what what He told about Jeremiah in that deed? This land will be fruitful again. He's interested in transforming your life in detail to be fruitful for Him. Now, may I say something to you here so you don't forget? You hear that? God can do that. Amen.